Like to start off our portion of the show By giving a taste of a little something we call Rock and roll Rock and roll Rock and roll Rock and roll All right. Hello and welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Your detour off the information superhighway where we celebrate all things rock and roll. I'm Don DiMuccio. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking to legendary record producer Shel Tommy, who's responsible for more hits than my co-host has ex-wives. And speaking of that co-host today, broadcasting from a floating tiki hut off the southern coast of Florida, the Sarasota kid himself, Ted Milhouse Stevens. Yeah. Hello, Daddy. <laughs> Hello, buddy. I miss you. Thanks. Listen, I'm glad we're catching up. It's been a little while. You and I go back to the golden era of rock and roll, 1989. Oh, baby, what was on the charts back then? We had, uh, was it Kaja Gugu? Was it yes. Little Aha? <laughs> <laughs> it was Aha, In Excess, one of my favorite bands. Now, I know you were doing, you had your whole Madonna thing phase of your life going on, and hey, it's been nothing but, but downhill ever since. Let's do it. I put on one wedding dress. And you can't let me live it down. I know. My God. Yep. Now, Teddy, you are, as I mentioned, out in Florida. We are originally from Rhode Island, the Rhode Island area. Boy, completely different mentalities when it comes to gigs. Am I wrong? It's totally different down here, at least for me now. I'm I'm a work right, I'm a working guitar player and singer singer, sideman. And down here in Florida, the one thing I've got that's beautiful is the weather's good year round and there's a lot of tourists uh, so i don't have to be on tour the 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 the, the tour kind of comes through our communities the people are always revolving and coming in and out and it's a lot easier to play at least on a local level down here and they're really responsive to some original music too so it's it's a little easier here than some other areas i think it, it i enjoy it is there a glut of clubs i mean it's just it must be endless amounts or is there just a certain circle that you play in there's clubs but there's also what i'm doing there's a lot of bigger um restaurant slash tiki you said tiki but and <laughs> but but it's so true there's these waterfront tiki bars and restaurants and places that that tour, tourists will go to and, and they're great places to play gigs and um and entertain and they're early don i can be at home and in bed by 10 30 most nights now uh-huh. i start playing at six at night oh, i envy you there yes because those uh drives at three in the morning in the middle of a, a new england blizzard in february i don't miss that no i i i enjoyed doing those with you but Honestly, uh, it, it, it's it's nice not to have to, to worry about um, your your you know if you're going to make it home on a Friday night going driving through a blizzard at two thirty in the morning. Yeah, that that those days. I'm glad those are behind us. <laughs> now, what's going on over there in terms of the COVID nineteen shutdown? How's that affected? I mean, it's, it's obvious, but tell us a little bit because I know you guys are opening up a little sooner than we are. So, how's that affecting what you've been not doing last few weeks? Well, what's happening in Florida, they they are opening up earlier than other states. Uh, we're already starting to kind of phase things back open. The restaurants are open to a limited capacity. Um, Nightclubs slash bars are not yet. But Florida um, has has taken this, this um, event a lot better than other parts of the country, probably because there's not as the communities are a little more spread out um, and maybe people are, were actually paying attention down here and doing the right thing. I, I hope so. But so far uh, everything's kind of easing back into some sort of normalcy, even though it, it, everything's like a parallel universe. Everyone's a little bit unsettled, I think, but it seems like America will start to come around here, which is good. That is good. You posted a couple of pictures of some of the shows you were doing over the last couple of days. I didn't see a whole lot of masks out there. 
No, it's fun. You know what? Here's what's going on with the shows. I've done um, two shows this weekend. The first two I've played in six weeks. And I saw very few masks. Uh, With the staff, there were some masks, but not with the public. Um, and, 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 And there's this weird thing out there right now where uh, some people you can tell are, are, are almost feel I can almost sense that people feel like they might be standing on thin ice. They're a little nervous. Should they be out? Is this safe? What, where, what do we do? Then there's other people, unfortunately, that are throwing caution to the wind. Uh, not to remind you of the, 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 the two drunken ladies that crashed up onto my stage <laughs> and whispered in my ear that they wanted to hear um my girl and i was my my only thought was well geez here we go this is how it all goes down for me someone some drunk asks for my girl and gives me a five dollar tip and now i'm gonna be in bed for a month with the flu mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, right so so but the, taking the comedy out of it yeah that's kind of what you see in here there's different elements of how people are uh behaving and yet the authorities don't seem to be cracking down on things like that. I've heard stories in California. If you're caught just walking around without a mask, the, the, the cops will round you up. Now, I don't know how much of that's hyperbole. I think depending on the area and how serious, um, Florida is certainly a pretty, you know, uh, you know, people down. This is a very, I'm not going to go political, but right. it's a really Republican state. So mm-hmm. they, 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 it's all about freedom down here for 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 all intensive purposes so we'll see how it plays out i, I so far so good well before i lose 50 percent of my audience let me get off the political thing <laughs> and know. now we've talked about rhode island and florida but you're uh, you've also got roots in las vegas it's a little bit different than fronting your own band tell the people what you do out there what you've done out there and what i think you're going to do again if i'm not mistaken in february yeah when i i was in vegas for um about 10 years and I was kind of, I'd lived there for part of the year and then I'd go back to Rhode Island or Florida. I didn't stay there year round, but I'd stay there for at least half a year. And, um, I was uh, a band leader for the, the drifters, the platters, the coasters had a show running at the Sahara, which is now defunct. It's another casino, just Mm -hmm. like everything in Mm -hmm. Vegas changes. I played with, uh, the Marvelettes, wow. um, GC Cameron of, of the spinners, uh, the temptations, just a lot of these classic soul Motown and rock and roll acts. And, Oh, it was great. And I still play with these acts. I'm not so much in Vegas, but when they tour Florida and, um, the tokens and it's, it was, it, it's really a fun, it's been a really fun part of my career. How many of those guys are the original members or is it, kind of like a cousin of someone who was roadieing for one of them. I mean, how, how far connected are they to the original? I know a lot of of them have passed. Yeah. A lot of them have passed. Some of the acts have got, um, many original members. Some of them have none. Um, but, but you know what the cool thing is, is that even the, the acts that, that have newer guys or maybe the, the oldest guys in the act, were trained by the original members. Maybe um, the the big thing I see is the passions there. These guys are trying to keep that torch lit from the fifties. Like the, the the they're trying to do it the way it was done fifty or sixty years ago and keep the torch lit. Sure. And and I love that. And, and the other thing that's kind of neat uh, in defense, because some people say, "Well, geez, if if you don't have these original members, how can you you shouldn't." have the band still out there but acts like the drifters and the platters don as soon as they recorded in the studio in 1956 guys were coming and going then uh this is just how these acts were uh as my friend once said uh just because babe ruth doesn't play baseball anymore doesn't mean you can't be a yankees fan that's a great analogy yep and it's true i mean uh the drifters uh there goes my baby by the time that was released and on the church Benny King was already out and a solo artist, I think. And he sang, yeah. he sang lead on that with the Drifters. He was gone. Uh, what, you know, Stand By Me, is his, it was the big one that he put his mark on. But yeah. And, and so those acts, it's a really unique thing 
Um, and I think, and you know about this too, just being a band leader where you can take other guys to come in and sub out or replace another singer and still keep it going. And I, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I've, I've been living through that with some of these acts for a long time. And overall, what I see is, is the, the power of this music will never die. And I love seeing the audiences, these older folks that grew up with it, still getting to relive their memories of being in high school or sure, whatever. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Is the audience just baby boomers or are you seeing a mix of younger people as well? You see some younger people, you see some of the kids and grandkids of the, of the folks, but no, it's, it's absolutely the, an, mostly an older crowd. Um, there's no denying that. The, the, in, hey, maybe there'll be a resurgence with like a new version of American Graffiti that comes out or said that what we need is a movie or something to bring it back. That right. seems to always recharge these the certain eras of rock and roll. Right, Don? Well, like you said, American Graffiti did yeah. wonders for, you know, the 50s nostalgia. Grease, of course. Yeah. And, and they were saying just the other day, somebody was mentioning that Ray Charles' career and Aretha Franklin's career was at a low point. In 1980 until the blues brothers movie came out and a whole new generation discovered them yeah i think that's what's cool you know as much as we we put down it, sometimes you put down commercialism and movies and but at the end of the day that can be really beneficial like whatever it takes to reach people and and turn them on to something new especially with arts or music like it's great even if it's some goofy thing on on, on a sitcom or something it might it might turn some kid onto a band they never heard of before. It's great. Well, speaking of turning people onto a band they might not have heard of, <laughs> tell me what you're doing in Florida. Tell me about your band. Well, I'm playing in a couple of different ways. Um, I play with a trio, Ted Stevens and the Do Shots, which is, as you know, this is what you and I have done for years. Um, it's a roots rock and roll, 50s, early 60s rock and roll show. Um, I do that. I do a solo gig where I'm trying to be the only guy in Florida, not the only guy, but I'm trying to just do a solo act where I don't have to play trap rock and, and Jimmy Buffett songs all night. Right. I, I, I mix everything in. I, I'm trying to play old 50s stuff, 60s stuff, classic rock, whatever, and originals, try to mix them up. And then when I'm not doing those two things, uh, I get to do some shows with the uh, you know, the tokens or the drifters or the platters or other acts that are coming through town. Um, and, and that, so it's, 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 it's good. It, it's being a true working guitar player, I guess. How much competition is there? You jokingly said being the only thing there. I'm curious how or is it? There's a lot of good players down here, um, doing all kinds of different stuff, whether it's solo acts, duos, bands, whatever. Um, but you know what? There's a good vibe down here. Everyone that's playing that I have met, there's not a lot of, it's not a very cutthroat seam scene. I think Florida, like everyone, a lot of folks are from different parts of the country. And I think it, it just kind of filters everything down a little bit. And everyone appreciates the fact that they're down here. Sure. Not everyone, but, but most people, it's, it's a non-competitive scene, at least with the folks that I'm involved with or I know. Are you doing any recording? Yeah, I'm getting ready to. Um, I got four CDs out. I recorded two in Florida. Um, and I'm do this year. I'm doing an. I'm doing another band CD and a solo CD. Um, so I'm hoping to do two of them. Uh, not hoping. I'm going to do two of them before the year is up. And uh, yeah, that's what's happening. You workaholic, you. My God. Yeah. And where can where can we get this on iTunes or? Yeah, I'm. You can. I'm on. I'm on all the channels. Don, you can find me Amazon, iTunes, TedStevens.net, and here's the best part: is every quarter I get this statement saying how many, how much money and royalties I get. And do you realize I make point zero one tenth of a percent of a cent when you stream me on Spotify? <laughs> sure, that's not overpayment. I know, Don. It's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> yes, it is. But and that's all right. Hey, at least people are listening to it. I'm. You no know one's. Hey, when Peter Frampton 
is complaining that he gets, you know, 50,000 streams of one of his big hits from the live album and he makes $2, I don't feel so bad. Of course not. Of course not. Boy, the business has changed, huh? Yeah. Well, it's just, it's evolved. And um, I think there's, the, the positive stuff is anybody can get their music out to the world via the internet and i think that's kind of cool for kids like the technology's there and the good and the bad will filter themselves out but i, I think you know maybe you're not going to make it on the, the big radio scene but you might be able to make it to a cool podcast you might make it to internet radio or you just might build up your own following do house concerts so yeah i i think it's changed but uh, depending on your attitude, I, I I don't think it's the worst thing. Crazy question out of left field. Yeah. Favorite producer. Oh man, that's easy. Dave Edmonds. Oh. No. <laughs> that's not a bad answer. That's not a bad answer at all. You know, and we both know that there's so many elements that go into making a good record, right? It's an art form that most people don't understand, including musicians. Well, we concentrate on the songwriters and the right. musicians. But let's face it, it's a great the, unsung hero of the recording studio, the producer. The producer, you go in, the producer takes your pile of clay and turns it into pottery or turns it into a sculpture. Sure. Yes. And you think of names like Phil Spector and George Martin, Phil Ramone, Richard Perry. And how about the man responsible for these songs? Take a listen to this. guest today is one of the most influential record producers of the 1960s with credits like the kinks tired of waiting for you and you really got me the easy beats riding on my mind and classics for the who like i can't explain in my generation his arrangements and technical innovations helped define the very sound of the british invasion please welcome to the it's only rock and roll podcast shell tommy good morning sir and good morning to you. Thank you for um, the interview. Absolutely. I don't like throwing the phrase living legend around, but uh, you'll forgive me for pointing out that you are truly a living legend in the record-making business, and it's it's my honor to have you. Thank you. Very kind words, and uh, I can't ever say that I actually think of myself that way, but it's nice to hear. Well, you should, because it's true. Now, you were born in Chicago, home of Chess Records. True. What was the music you were listening to as a, as a teen and young man during that period of the birth of rock and roll? Uh, I was listening to music a lot. I think um, I started listening to one of the stations that started playing R&B. The, uh, the record that really got to me initially was G by the Crows. And I thought, this is great. And this is definitely different. And um, I started uh, looking into R&B and blues and all that kind of thing. That kind of uh, stepped me off, I think. Sure. And I understand your first foray into uh, show business was on a TV show. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. basically I was a smart-ass kid who uh, <laughs> one of the teachers sent in my name to this show. It's called The Quiz Kid that was on for umpteen years. And uh, so... Uh, I had a, an audition. I passed. I passed the test, and I, I was on um, for many times until the sponsor finally dropped them after umpteen years, and they went off the air. But uh, I did that when I was thirteen years old. Thirteen. And how many years did you do that for? 
uh, well, for most of that year, ah, uh, okay. during when I was 13 and until they went off the air. Uh, I mean, what, what uh, did it for me was I loved the idea of the whole thing with showbiz and, and stuff like that. And I even then knew I really wanted to be behind the camera, not in front of it. But um, it was, you know, TV show, and uh, and, and that was, it was fun. Sure, and, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I don't know what 15-year-old kids are supposed to think, but I, uh, but I, whatever it was, I did. After graduation, you, you started working in and around the music business. Uh, I understand you worked a little bit with the Wrecking Crew in L.A.? Yes, well, I, well, I was a recording engineer for uh, a year and a half here in L.A. with... Uh, studio called Conway, which was one of the seminal studios to begin with and still in operation today under different ownership, of course, but mm-hmm. uh, still one of the best studios going. And um, the studio that I was working in had the wrecking crew as regular uh, visitors to be recorded as, as part of, of all the records we were doing because we were really on the cutting edge of doing you know, whatever was current and what what's going to be current. Mm-hmm. So um, so that was an excellent experience, to say the least. Who were some of the artists in the songs you were working on? Oh, God, I, I can't remember. I just, did so many. I think I read you did work with Bobby <laughs> Darren. I, I did not work with Bobby Darren. I met Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren was... Uh, my, my very good friend was Nick Benet at Capitol Records, who was recording Bobby Darren. And so I met Bobby a couple of three times. He was great. I never worked with him. That was uh, Nick's um, uh, productions. Okay. And tell me how you got over to England. What led to that? Uh, well, the, the, the studio, the Conway studio I was working at was owned by an English guy named Phil Yin. And uh, he kept telling me how wonderful England was. And I was in my very early 20s. And I thought, what the hell, I better check this out before life passes me by. So um, I said, okay, I'm going to go for five weeks and check it out and, and see uh, a bit of Europe at the same time, and I'll be back. And um, I, I had a deal with um, a, uh, a, a local record label to do um, a bunch of singles for them. Yep. So as far as I turn everything was, was fine. I was beginning my production career. And um, so... Basically, again, going back to Nick Vinay, I told him I was going, and I said, I'm going to try and work a couple of weeks because I'm going to have a whole lot of bread. And um, he said, uh, here, take, take a couple of my acetates and uh, tell him you did them. I said, okay, great, I will. <laughs> I, I went over there, and, uh, uh, and one of the contacts that, that was made for me by people I knew in L.A. arranged for uh, an, a, uh, an interview with Dick Rowe, who was the head of A&R Decca, and I came in, and I guess I, would, I was deliberately brash because I thought that probably be a better thing to do since uh, I was American, and they expected it, and I wasn't going to be there very long anyhow, so I didn't care. And uh, I basically said something like, uh, uh, here I am, I'm, I'm an independent producer, not on staff, and uh, arguably, I'm the best thing since Spike Spread was invented. And here's a couple of things I, I just did and gave him Nick's essays, which happened to be Lou Rawls and the Beach Boys. And Nick said, uh, you start today. So uh, I, uh, the first session I did was with the band. I mean, in retrospect, I think they were testing it because he gave me a band called The Bachelors, who were three Irish harmonica players. They didn't sing. They played harmonica. That was an act. And so I spent time teaching them what to do and who was going to sing what and all that kind of stuff. And the first session I did, uh, we, we, uh, I did a, a track called Charmaine, which was a surprise to me, a very big hit. Mm. So I said, well, I might as well stay on. So, <laughs> and it takes 17 years. That could never happen today, a story like that. That's great. Of course, because then nobody would have picked up a phone or, or or text it or whatever the case may be because it didn't exist. And um, so they wrote letters. And by the time, uh, and actually some of the letters went to my friends who, uh, of course, endorsed everything I said about that. I, you know, that hits and stuff like that. So, <laughs> right. 
So, uh, so in any event, by this time, really had a hit, and you know, no, and they were gentlemanly enough never to mention the fact that I had uh, lied. We just carried on. Sure, sure. Now you mentioned Dick Rowe. Wasn't he famous for uh, turning down the Beatles? Yeah, uh, it, it, that's a bad rap, you know. What he he was the head of the NR. He had another. Uh, he had his senior producer was a guy named Mark Smith, and he was given a choice of either signing the the, the Beatles or uh, God, the name escapes me. Here, the band he actually signed, and he chose the he chose the other band. Uh, so it was it wasn't Dick Rowe turned him down. It's it's folklore, anyhow. Sure, it might sure. very well be true. Sure, sure. There you go. I, and again, you were there in 62, 63, so you got a preview of what was going to hit the United States, Beatlemania. Well, no question. I was right at the beginning, and even so it was really kind of just before it happened. Um, and subject to that, which kind of a cute story, I guess, when the Beatles hit there, and I was right on top because my very good friend was the, the promoter for, the, his name was Arthur Howe, was... Uh, the promoter for most of the concerts of any substance that were going on in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got a, a, a little good upfront idea of where the Beatles were going. And I wrote to Nick at Capitol and I said, check out this band called the Beatles. Uh, I never heard another word. And uh, 30 years later, skip 30 years later, I'm back in LA and Nick and I are at a, at a, a studio together, and he said, you know, i got to tell you something. I, I should have told you ages ago. When you wrote that letter about the Beatles, I went to the president of Capitol. I said, we've got to sign this band. And that's how the Beatles was initially wound up with Capitol, wow. which I never knew. Wow. <laughs> that's, well, that's a great story. Wow. And that would have been uh, Alan Livingston, right? I think was the president. Yeah, yeah, it was. Alan Livingston. Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Now, you started working with the Kinks. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Chinks uh, was, I guess, really a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Um, I was visiting my friends at a uh, Mills Music publisher in Denmark Street and waiting for them out in the lobby because it was lunchtime we're going up, we were going to a pub or something. And uh, Robert Wace, one of the managers, walks in with an acetate and he said, anybody here would like to listen to this acetate? And I said, yeah, I'm here, I'll listen. So I did. And uh, I liked a lot of what I heard. And uh, progressed on from there is that I took them into high because of the fact that uh, as an independent producer, which I, I told you initially, uh, was actually getting royalties as opposed to what was happening uh, generally at that time where people were on, all the producers were on salary. And, um, I thought along with me being an independent producer, I'm going to bring in bands. I've, I've brought in both Manfred Mann and Georgie Fame and Decca turned them both down. Oh. And I thought as I am now an independent, as I've been an independent producer, I will now be independent. Mm. So I took the kinks into pie. I didn't even bother with the, uh, with, with Decca. Right. And, uh, made, I made the deal with pie. Let me ask you this. Was the famous tensions between the, the Davis brothers present then? Did you witness any, any of that? No, oh, yeah, it was, it was definitely present. And um, we got into a routine, the rest of us, I'm talking about the rest of the band and the, and the engineers. And uh, when they got into it, which it sometimes got physical, I say, okay, guys, the rest of us, we're taking a 15-minute coffee break. See you in a while. And, uh, Smart, yeah. <laughs> uh, Left them to it. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I want to talk to you a little bit about The Who, but before I do, uh, as a drummer, I personally appreciate uh, how you developed miking techniques for for, uh, for drums versus what right. was going on as the, the standard of the day, maybe, you know, a couple of mics. Uh, you were actually miking every piece of the kit. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, yeah, sure. I, I uh, Part of what I decided to try and do when I was being a recording engineer was to see if I could work out better ways to mic all the instruments we were working on. And one of the, of course, being the drums at that point in time, um, 
everybody was using three or four mics only. And so uh, I spent several hours um, figuring out how to mic it and uh, uh, so that each piece was individually mic and I could control it and it wouldn't phase. And um, so I did finally work that out. And when I went over to London, of course, brought that with me. And on that first session, I, you know, uh, I was doing my own micing. And uh, they, started, they saw me doing a dozen mics, and they said, you can't do that, it's going to phase. I said, I guess you'll have to wait and see. So it, it Now explain phase, phasing obviously. a little bit, to maybe a little technical for some of the people listening. Uh, what, it, what it means is you get very strange noises like, uh, I'm not how to explain phasing. Um, like they cancel, it, they cancel it, each other? It goes, like, it goes like a sound like up and down, like uh, it's a series of, uh, of, of notes up and down, which will will sound strange unless it's meant to be. Right. Of course, facing now is something that's used all the time. Like on Itchy Cool Pop by the Small Faces. Right. Yeah, lots of other things. I mean, um, so, it, you know, two months later, everybody was uh, using 12 mics in, in London. And um, uh, and that's what I said. And I did the same thing, really, with guitars. I tried to figure out how to record them better, how to get a better sound out of them. Uh, how to record feedback, all of which I, you know, brought with me. So, speaking of feedback, talk to me a little bit about working with the Who. Yeah, well, that's that's I worked that out with specifically uh, what Pete Townsend was going to do on the uh, Honey Rain You Wear and uh, um, and with Generation, we we spent a few hours just he and I in the studio. <clears throat> um, in the specific studio that I was going to work at, and uh, seeing how it, uh, I, I tried out different places to use mics. I used three different mics eventually, and uh, had them placed right, and that's how we got the feedback sound. Or Pete in particular, that is. Right. I understand the, the record company rejected one of the first mixes because they, they thought it was a mistake? Yeah, it was American Decca, and um, I sent them... Anyhow, anywhere, anywhere, and which had feedback on it, right. and they they telegraphed me, of course, back and said, uh, "We think you sent us the wrong uh, mix because we got all these strange noises on it." So <laughs> I wired back and said, oh, "These are really actually meant to be," and uh, they were they were cool about it, and they said, "Okay," and <laughs> released the, and released the record. So. Now, I, I I don't know if this is a touchy subject, but I know there was some little bit of acrimony between yourselves. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a touchy subject. It's just it's too many years have gone by. It had nothing to do with, with the band. It had to do with Kit Lambert, who was one of the managers, right. <clears throat> who was uh, extremely jealous, apparently, of my so-called influence with the band because uh, when I signed them, I signed to my company. Yep. I had never done anything with them except hit, starting with, I can't explain. Mm -hmm. And um, and he decided that he was going to breach my contract, which he didn't get away with. I, I sued. I won, obviously. Right. And uh, But I didn't get a chance to record him again. So, and there you go. Was it just the first album and the singles and that was it? Right. I did a lot. I, 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 did, a bunch, I did a bunch of other uh, tracks all together. I think there's probably, I don't know, 30 something. Part of the... The lawsuit went in my in my way, of course, and so I I didn't come out of it badly at all. Uh, however, I resent the fact that I never had a chance to continue recording them. Of course, I can understand that. Um, talk to me about the Easy Beats, whose guitarist George Young, big brother of um, Malcolm and Angus Young of ACDC, and later went on to produce some of their records as well. Yeah, uh, well, the Easy Beats was. Okay, we're talking several years later now. This, the back story is, which I learned afterwards, is um, <clears throat> that they had made a mark in Australia. They were signed to a, uh, a guy named Ted Albert, who was, who was the son of the Albert Publishing Company, uh, which is, I, I understand, the leading publishing company in Australia. Mm -hmm. And um, he had done some things with them, in Australia, and they had hits, and they were treated extremely well. 
by the general public, and uh, and their working manager, whose name was Mike Vaughn, got him a deal with uh, United Artists for the world. And so they came over to London, and Ted Albert, who was the quote-unquote producer, um, did, I gather, two, three, four tracks. I'm not sure what. In any event, this is uh, stuff I'm, I'm telling you by hearsay because I don't, I wasn't there. Um, UA, UA fired them because they apparently were terrible. Oh. And so Mike Vaughn came and said, um, I, you know, uh, am the working manager of the, uh, the band and uh, would you like to, you know, listen to because we were looking for a producer. So I heard him. I liked, I liked a lot of music. I liked the band a lot. I said, yeah, okay, cool. So I did a, a deal to do them. And um, I didn't actually like any of the songs I heard. So what happened was that I asked them to go away and write songs and come up once a week and play me what they written. And, you know, eventually we'll find a song. This went on for about, I don't know, five or six weeks. Mm. And um, they came in and played in my mind, I said, yes, that's it. We're in, we're going to the next place. <laughs> I bet. What a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. Yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. And it, was, it was one of those things that, for me, was an instant hit. Sure. Now, I know you, you worked a little bit with Jimmy Page, and <laughs> I understand you, you've you been asked one question a million times. So yes, yeah. a million that's, and one won't did, kill you no, at this not, point. He did not play the solo on You Really Got Me. Okay. Uh, which he, he, did, he did finally admit and uh, no, it was always Dave Davies. Dave, as I have said, had him Also, is one of the most underrated guitarists in rock and roll. He's a very good guitarist. So that, that's the end of that. <laughs> Give me like an overall feeling of how you feel the business has changed. Is it for the better? Is it well, for the worse? Well, I, I think from my point of view, I, uh, that the business and still somewhat current, went through a period of what I personally didn't consider as music. Um, rap, as far as I'm concerned, you want to call it urban poetry or street poetry, that's fine, mm -hmm. but please don't call it music, because it's not. Right. And, uh, and as that dominated the business for several years, um, that was the reason why I went and did a whole lot of other things and didn't bother try to make records because there was no point. Right. So music has now crept back into the charts, and I've credited Billie Eilish and her brother, her brother in particular, for writing the right kind of songs, and even though he's put a modern frame around what he wrote, it's still music. Sure. And just being a cut industry, uh, everybody started doing the same thing. So music is back, I'm pleased to say. And so I'm, I got back in the studio. I'm actually back in the studio doing stuff. Anything you can talk about? Some of the artists you're working with? Uh, well, I think I, I just I just said I uh, over a year or two ago I acquired an historian um, named Alec Palau, who knows lots more about what I produced than I know what I produced. He's he's got a band called Strangers in a Strange Lands. Uh, they they're uh, he's up. He lives up in San Francisco, and they play a lot of gigs around there. And uh, he and the singer Paul Cox uh, wrote a couple of what I thought were really good songs, and I offered to produce them for him. And uh, they just would have been released. The first one just been released is called Broken Tambourine. So, Broken Tambourine. Uh, that's, and it's yeah, by Strangers it's, in a uh, Strange Land? Yeah, Strangers in a Strange Land. It, yeah, it's on Facebook, actually. I wrote a... Uh, I think about you know about what I just told you, and there's a link to um, the uh, the record there. Well, I hope everybody out there goes and downloads that and listens to it, and more importantly, buys it, preferably on vinyl if it's available. Uh, I don't know any of that. All I did was produce it. You can't play a broken tambourine. I'm gonna show you what I mean. Like she's gonna change her tune 
Tambourine, a new show, Tammy production. And we'd like to thank him for taking the time to be on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. That was pretty cool, huh, Ted? Oh, my God. Think about it, Don. These songs are beyond. This is like the soundtrack of planet Earth. It's bigger than music. It's it's. This is stuff that, that's going to transcend, you know, generations forever and ever. Well, speaking of musicians and songs that are going to transcend generations we lost the originator, the architect. Little Richard passed away yesterday at 87 years old. And I don't know about you, but we've done many a Little Richard song in our lifetime. And one of the great inspirations for everyone. Oh, my God. I saw Little Richard at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel back in the 90s. In Providence, Rhode Island. It was loud. It was kind of you could tell it's unscripted he's got two of everybody in the band he's hooting and hollering the guy then he was you know this this is the guy that's been doing for how many years and um think about it he came up playing the 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 swinging uh, r&b and and now it's it's turning into something else it's rock and roll they're just create he's creating these guys are creating rock and roll and uh and he did it and, and not only did it he did he did it for his whole career and he in, influenced everybody and it, it's you can't even imagine it's amazing and you know they like to make fun of him for always saying i inspired the beatles and then you know, mick jagger ripped me off and Jimi hendrix was my guitar player but you know what if he didn't say it nobody else would it ain't bragging if it's true and he did come before everybody before elvis elvis covered him on his first album not the other way around yes 
you called it and 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 Elvis from Elvis the Beatles everybody covered little Richard Paul McCartney I probably can't say enough about it no no nobody can sure and, and um oh man and he was just super every interview he did was over the top very mm -hmm. flamboyant I mean he, he was a true like icon you can't you can't make him up and there'll never be anyone else like him ever no and he was one of the first to make rock and roll not just a music but a lifestyle it was an entire, he was the persona, and he lived it. It wasn't fake. He didn't put it away as a character when the show was over. That was little Richard. That was Richard Pennyman. That, <laughs> you know? that was him. Teddy, I don't know. I don't know. I think Little Richard's upset that we played some of his music because uh, <laughs> we're having a little technical difficulties. And Teddy had to pick up a different line. I get with me now, Ted. I am here, yes, and I promise you that um, my hair is not as cool as Little Richard's ever ever was and never will be. Well, that's whose is. <laughs> God. But it is true, though. You were saying about how, how, how much of an inspiration he was for everybody. And this is a little interesting fact that I didn't realize. After 1957, he never hit the charts again. Yeah, I know, and it seems kind of odd, like um, because he's always kind of been around. He's been in, you know, you've seen him in a movie here and there in the 50s. I mean, he was in a bunch of movies, and even in the 80s. Remember, he he had a cool scene in one of the. I'm so sorry, I don't remember the name of the film, but but easily find it. But yeah, he's everybody knows who he is. Of course. I mean, he was an icon. And they should. He was an icon. But it's, you know, like so many things, we don't appreciate him when he's here. Um, I wanted to go see him at that Lupo show. I remember it very clearly. And uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's gone to history now. We have those great records on specialty, specialty records. Those are classic Little Richard cuts. And uh, I was going to say what I thought was cool is that 
you know, little Richard rock and roll, um, high energy. But the fact is, I some of my piano player friends always raved at how accomplished like this guy could play. Like he had a super wide reach and he played really neat chords. Like they were like he wasn't just a guy pounding on the keys. Like he was a really good piano player. Right. Um, which is awesome. So he had his musicianship. He had his chops. He had the the voice and everything that goes with it. I've heard that said that Jerry Lee Lewis is a is a pounder, and that's nothing to take nothing away from the talents and legacy of the killer. Who now nope. that I think about it, is pretty much the only one left from that crew. Am I wrong? Right. He is the. I think so. And we opened up for it for Jerry Lee. Um, in April of 2019 in, in Vegas. Yep. Um, and he was, he came out on stage, Jerry Lee, and he, and you know, and, and, he, and he goes like this to the crowd. This is a great story. He goes, he goes, hi, ladies and gentlemen, how does it sound out there? And the whole crowd goes, great. And they all start cheering. There's like 5,000 people out there. And he goes, well, it don't sound too good up here. <laughs> I mean, typical, like is, Jerry Lee Lewis. That's Jerry Lee right there. That's great. Yep. And the sound men are all running around, freaking out. <laughs> I know. Any crazy Vegas stories you can think of? Oh, man. I'm, I, I've always said, no, spot. I'm a waste of space in Vegas. I'm a waste in space. I, I, the, 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 no craziness that I can think of. I mean, there was a couple of, you know, we, we the, the show that I was in when I was out there ran seven nights a week. You work seven nights a week for months at a time, mm -hmm. and you just learned that the funny thing is, even though you played the same set almost every night, it was always a little bit different, and you and it, it was really cool. Um, and it was it's it was it was always fun, and uh, and it's still it's always fun. The show is the show is always end on a high note, but. Um, yeah, the crazy stories. Ah, you know me, Don. I go to bed too early for that stuff. And you know, Teddy, speaking of ending the show on a high note, I want to play a couple tracks from the great Ted Stevens, one of which is off uh, one of your new CDs, I understand. Yeah, one of the newer CDs is called, uh, the, the, the album is Ted Stevens and the Do Shots, Cursed Cadillac, and the tune is Rusty Old Rail, which has a Rhode Island uh, reference for you, Don. And it goes something like this. <laughs> All aboard!
Rusty O'Neill from Ted Stevens and the Do Shots. Did I get that right? That's correct. All right. Teddy, it's been a blast having you here. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you come back and join us again sometime. Thank you so much, and thanks for, for finding these folks that are um, so important for, for rock and roll and music and, 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 and talking to them and talking to me and, and sharing, sharing all your knowledge, Don. And hopefully next time we do this, there won't be a typhoon hitting Florida. <laughs> there's, there's always something about to hit Florida, Don. I know, I know. <laughs> yes, no, we will stay safe down here. And you too, buddy. All right. And we want to thank once again, Shell Tommy, for spending some time with us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And then we're going to end the show with a song that Teddy did with my band, Black and White, all those years ago. It's called Drive Me Insane. Take care, guys, and hit like and subscribe to the podcast. Palms go sweaty and my eyes go dry. Mouth gets craving for the taste of wine. Cats are barking and I don't know why. Brains all pinned up on the laundry line Get us playing but it's got no strength Vultures flying, thought I'm clipping wings Cord is cutting, how the grizz are burned Can't find no reason for the state of things Man, it hit me like a book of fire in the rain They're gone and driving Drive inside.